not. I mean, it's the Jesus is there, but it is the acts of the apostles or the acts of the Holy Spirit, as some have called it. And that's where we're going to be, as well as a couple other passages this morning. want to remind you guys that after our service today, we have food downstairs. If any of you forgot to bring food, it doesn't matter. You are here, and uh, that is a great pleasure for us to have you here with us. And so please come join us to have food. Uh, I encourage you to get down there before Wayne does, because Wayne will eat all of your food. Yeah. Uh, it's great to have you here this morning, Brother Wayne. Love to see you. We are in Acts chapter 6. Before we read, let's pray together. And now, God, as we look into your word, as we do week by week, we don't want this to just be some practice that we do together. We don't want this to be something that we expect and to always know what is coming next. We want you, God, to shock us out of our apathy and our routine in order to show us what you are calling us to do. Not only a deeper faith, but a more committed life of faith in this world. So use your word in this way, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenaeus, and Nicholas, and a, pros a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. We've been talking about something that I have called Doxa 2.0, which is sort of a, just a really fancy way of saying, we've been somewhere, but we need to grow. We need to grow into something more, to something better. We need to keep expanding our uh, horizons. We need to keep thinking outside of the box. Everybody gets into this routine in their lives or their church or their job where they kind of have a way of doing things, and then something shakes that up, and the first thing you do is go, stop shaking that up, right? It doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. And then you start to go, no, you know, we do need some change here. Have you had that happen in your life recently, where it's something you really, really didn't want to do, but then once you did it, you said, yeah, we should have done that. That sounds like a great idea. It just, it, you know, it's easy to look back now and go, that was fine, but Change is difficult. And if we're not prepared to change, and especially as a church when you say, you know, there's, there's things that we should never change. We have truths that should not change. 
We talk about the open hand and the closed hand, right? There are these truths that we believe that are always true. We talk about the Apostles' Creed that way, the Nicene Creed that way, certain theological truths in which we say we will not compromise these things, and there are certain open hand things in which we say here we have very strong beliefs in this area, but they are not essentials to the faith. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus died and was raised from the dead, you know, after three days. All those things, if you don't believe those things, then you are not a Christian. We hold those as dear, as important, as crucial, and therefore we can't let them go. But there's other things that we believe that Christians can disagree upon and still be Christians, still be a part of the faith. So we need to know these things and believe these things, and then there are things that we can change, and then there are ways now in which the truths that we hold as close as our congregation, as those things now flesh themselves out into ministry in the world. It is not enough to know the things that we know, but now to do the things that we know. And sometimes when we get into the area of what we do, that's where we can make the greatest amount of change, and it's often where we need to. If you remember, and we've talked about this several times in the last few weeks and even in you know, months and years in the past, uh, there's that passage in Hebrews in which it says, you know, encourage one another to continue to meet together. It's not just encourage one another to believe something, although that's a good thing to do, but to encourage each other because it's very easy to say this is what I believe, but then to not show up. It's easy to notice when someone's gone on a Sunday morning. And you say, oh no, Tony and Jenny aren't here. What's wrong? Why are they sleeping in? And you go, no, 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 they're out of town. They're gone. I know they were going to be gone. Some of you are going, oh, I'm glad Pastor Steve said that so he's not just picking on the people who are not here, right? I knew they were going to be, I knew they were going to be gone today, which meant, you know, more, more food for me. So there you go. Um, but when they're gone, we should say, oh, somebody's not here. Are they okay? What's wrong, right? What's wrong with them? Is something, is something wrong? Oh, no, 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 they're just traveling. Okay, good. God bless them. You know, may they enjoy their time away and worship with the people that they're with or, you know, whatever else. And, and then we long to see them again. And that's just one little tiny way this can happen. But we, and we think about what it means to be doxa in the years to come. It starts with in the day to come. It starts with in the week to come. It starts with in the month to come. And we can look forward five years and say, yeah, there's these things we want and have these great intentions, but it takes today to get us to where we want to be in five years. It takes today and this week to get us where we want to go in a year or in six months. Sometime by the middle of 2016, we may have ideas or plans or we really hope these things happen for us, and yet they will never happen unless we actually have intention that is followed by action. I was talking to Molly just about stuff at home and stuff the kids are doing and, you know, noticing the kids come home from school and they've got homework or they've got activities or they have sports or they have the play and Jack's the lead in the play right now, which is awesome. Congratulations, Jack. It's a neat thing. Literally, Jack is the lead of the play. And we found out as he was bowing after the first night of the play. He just was like, yeah, it's a, pretty, it's a pretty big part. Yeah, yeah. So we're there, and all of us are looking at each other rather than the, you know, the crew. We're looking at each other going, did you know? Did you know he was the leader of the play? 
So the kids come home and have all these things to do, and so they have tech week for the play, and tech week means you basically have no life other than go to school, work on the play, and even when you're eating a meal, you're eating with each other, and then you're wor working and thinking about the play. And so Jack would come home at 10 o'clock at night after leaving at 7 o'clock in the morning. Did you leave at 7 o'clock in the morning? Yeah, so he'd be at school at like 7.20. So he'd leave at 7 in the morning, he'd come home at 10 at night, and then it was time to start his homework for the next day. And so, you know, 1 a.m. would show up, and Jack's finishing his homework. And so as that happened, you know, my response is like, you know, you need to do your homework better and get your homework done faster. And, and I just started to go, hey, you know, it'd, it'd be good, not that he was not doing his homework or goofing off because he was working extremely hard, as this morning indicated. Jack was very difficult to get out of bed this morning. Tired after all this work that he's done. But I just thought, you know, it'd be good, it'd be good to work with our kids and to sit down with our kids and to go, okay, here's how you plan out a week, or here's how you plan out a month, here's how you plan out even a, just a day. Just those little practical things, because you know if you want to get to where the play is, they've got to start all the way at the beginning, and they have to get people to try out, they have to pick a cast, and then they have to get leaders to work over that cast, and, and then they have to make a plan and schedule, and then as that schedule, they, you know, working hours every day to get it done, and people have to build a set, and it's a, if, if you just watch any play one time, and you're not really involved in understanding how it works, it's a lot. I mean, you can just see it on the stage. Like, somebody had to put all that together. They just get together last night and whip it up? No, no, no. They've been working for a very long time. It takes a lot of planning and a lot of structure in your day in order to get a couple months down the road to have the play and to have it be a success. It takes a lot for us as Christians, as a church, to look down the road and to say, what do we want to have happen next month or six months from now or next year? How much planning is it going to take? Because sometimes, in order for it to be this magnificent play and to have this person doing the right thing, this person the right thing, and the lighting be right and the sound be right, for all those things to take place, there were some really boring things happening three months beforehand. Really boring. And it's just like, Really? I've got nails and a hammer and paint, and I've got my ugly clothes on so they can get all messy, and this is what we're doing. I remember going to a play that Sarah was, the, you know, the, behind the scenes and got the big plaster mask. Remember that? That's giant monster silver head. And I'm like, okay, that, somebody had to think of the head and then figure out how to make it, and there's chicken wire in there and paper mache and, you know, I don't know, the sinews of, you know, demons or something. I don't know what was in the thing that somebody had to make a plan and put it all together. If we are going to be the next, the, the future, the, the, the ongoing growth of Doxa, if we're going to say, where do we go from here to what is next? We are going to have to make plans now and do some things that might seem more boring now, but be committed to them or we can't get to where we want to go. If we don't spend the time now, day by day, week by week, month by month, we should not expect to get results from nothing. How many of you have tried to ever whip up a cake and you just looked in your cupboard and you went, I don't have any flour, but this really powdery substance will do. You know, just a bunch of powdered sugar. It looks like flour. Just put it in there. I've got no eggs except for hard-boiled eggs, but I'll just throw those in there because it's the same stuff, right? Some powdered sugar, some hard-boiled eggs. Let's mix it up. 
Where's my whisk? Put it together. It's a little dry. It's all right. I've got tap water. Throw some tap water in there. I don't have any baking soda, but I've got some soda. <laughs> right? You just start going. It's close enough. It looks, I mean, you know, some of it looks the same, and some of it has the same words. And If you just do that and try to put it together, Molly had to make something for, for this play, and she was like, she was in the kitchen, and she said to herself, oh, please, let, let there be butter. <laughs> she opens the fridge, opens the freezer. She's looking around for butter. There's no butter. So guess what there is? There's car, and then there's store, and then there's pay, and then there's butter. Then there's cake or whatever else, whatever it was that she was making. It takes planning. It takes strategy. It takes commitment. It does not mean commitment to do something every once in a while so that I look like I'm active. I I need you guys to hear this, and I'm saying this to myself too. It does not mean I'll do something just enough to believe that I'm active so that people look at me and say, they're there enough of the time that things seem okay. It means commitment. So I've got friends in ministry, and I, I talk to them regularly about stuff they do. How do you train up your leaders? How do you, you know, plan the people in ministry? How do you do these, any number of things? And they'll be like, hey, so we have this meeting that we do like every morning once a week for six weeks or for six months or for whatever else it is. And then I say, okay, so what happens if you don't get somebody that shows up? What if, what if somebody is just like, you know, oh, I didn't do my reading for this week, or oh, you know, I can't make it next week because I'm, you know, I just overslept, or I can't, you know, this happened or that happened, and they're like, then they're done. They can't come back. When we restart again, they can commit to come back and be a part of it, or they, or they, they can't be a part of it. Some of you have been in stuff like that, right? Where it's like, oh, everybody's like, yeah, I can show up to one thing, but if you're saying it's going to be every week, Man, I don't know, because I've got those, you know, chickens that are going to lay their eggs, and I'm going to have to go and pull those eggs out, because I've got to make some breakfast, and then, you know, I've got to go wash my duck, because, you know, my duck has been kind of getting in the mud lately, and, you know, and I've got this other thing going, and I just, you know, it's been a long week, but guess what? When it's been a long week for Jack, he doesn't get to go, I'm just, I've got to skip Thursday play practice. He skips Thursday play practice, they're going to find somebody else to be in his place. Matter of fact, they had, I'm going to get some of these facts wrong, but I know this happens, but I remember hearing something like this. They have the first night of the play, some kid doesn't do his job. Guess what they did? They put somebody else there, said, done. That's just how it has to be. You can't. You can't execute something important that has multiple pieces like a church. We have multiple we are the body of Christ. We have multiple pieces to what we do. We have people doing different various levels of things and we can't do what God wants us to do if we don't have all of those things falling into place. All the way back from planning and ideas to then actual strategies and leadership, to then actual execution of the things that need to happen in the process of it happening. And I'm one of those people that is really easy for me to formulate ideas, and then the execution sometimes fails. And so I've got to look for people around me in my own life, even with my own kids. I do this with my kids. I go to my kids and I say, hey, I've got this really great idea, but in a week or two I'm going to hate it. 
So I need you to remind me. What, a week or two ago, Danny was like, Dad, did you, did you walk in the treadmill today? It's like, shut up, Daniel. <laughs> but I, I had told them, like, hey, this is some of the plans that I'm trying to put together and things I want you to do, so I'm going to need you to pester me. So the next day he pestered me, and I was like, you know, why did I do that? Well, I know why I did that, and guess what I did the next day? The very next day, treadmill was out, and then I walked around after Danny came home from school, waiting for him to ask me if I got in the treadmill, and he never asked. <laughs> Little stinker, you know, I'm walking around like, hey, look how proud I am of myself. Like three days later, yeah, 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 I got in the treadmill three days ago, you know. Just very simply, the church is a group of ministers, and we all have jobs. We may not know our jobs, we may not know our jobs well, we may just kind of go, well, I'll, I'll just do enough to get by, or do enough so that others will let me get by, right, or do, or do enough to just make it look like I'm involved, and to be honest, here it's really easy for all of us to feel like if we've all been here on Sunday morning and we all see each other and shake hands and have a giggle, go downstairs and eat a pickle, I had to find something that rhymed with giggle. You know, if we, if we all do that together, we're all going to go, man, that was great. We were all together, and that is absolutely crucial to the life of our church. But if it stops there, if it stops with our ministry to each other was we all brought a dish, we're going to really be in trouble in the era of Doxa 2.0. What's next for us is we have to all get very involved. And that means we're going to have to make commitments to things that is going to start to wear us down a little bit. And then we have to turn to God's word for encouragement. We have to turn to each other for the stick to that we need in order to keep going. We're going to have to be able to, to point ourselves, repoint ourselves day after day toward that longer vision and goal of what should be in order for us to do what is necessary today and make it so. We have to be able to look down the road at a vision of what should be and then do what's necessary today to take us one more step to make it so. In Acts chapter 6, as we read, we see the early church. We, you know, you go back a few chapters, you have the early church and, and, and you have thousands that respond to the gospel and you have this multiple times where groups of people sort of pile into the church and they go from a very small group to a, a, a large group to a larger group to a larger group to a larger group and they begin to meet together day after day and in the temple they, they begin to share goods with each other they're meeting together focusing on the apostles teaching their fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers they have this this ongoing life in this church they didn't need three years to figure out how to pray and to focus on the apostles teaching they did it immediately because that's what the church does. And then what happens is, is they go through different trials and constant mission. Mission out, persecution happens, various things happen. They come back in, they meet as the church, they go back out, they come back in, they go back out. And this constant work of the church inside, working on themselves, outside, spreading the gospel around the world. And that's how the church grows. It's, a, it's, the, it's the beating heart of the church. The, the heartbeat of boom, boom, in and out, 
right? The heart is just beating. It's going in and out. And as soon as it stops, so it stays in, you're in trouble. It stopped beating. The mission's no longer going out. You only go out, now there's compromise. Everything is left. Now you've just given over to the world. Now you've just changed your theology, and there's no longer that life inside. If everybody in the church is a missionary, so we all go scatter and spread the gospel, but we never gather again, we're in trouble. We just sang a new song this morning. We meet to part and part to meet. Right? That, that heartbeat is built into the song. We gather together for a time so that we can go out for a time, and, but we're planning on coming back together again. You can see that in the weekly, daily life of the church. You can see that in the work of a missionary. Somebody, this, this was written by a faculty at a seminary. It was my seminary hymn. And they had, in particular, in mind, seminary students who would meet for a time in order to grow together and to learn together, to be prepared for ministry. And then they part to go out into the world knowing that one day we'll all meet together again in eternity. Even though in this world we may never see or hear from each other again. I have a number of seminary friends that because of Facebook and stuff I still keep in touch or by phone or by text or by email. But most of us don't see each other anymore. And there are some who I haven't seen or heard from since. And one day I'm going to see them again and they're going to be like, whoa, and I'm going to be like, oh man, it's, I just... I completely forgotten. I even knew you. Like, but, but that's great. We were there for a time, but we parted so that we could meet here now today. In Acts chapter 6, the church is now learning to deal with the problem of ministry. When ministry fails, when needs are not met inside the church. As I've said before, a, a lot of what we think about in the life of a church is the church working on its own health so that we are prepared at any time and all times to be going out on the mission. It's like in, in sports, right? You go and you prepare to be on a football team or basketball team. I, I, when I was in high school, I remember in basketball, um, I, I played basketball. I was a point guard growing up, and the point guard is supposed to be fast. I was never super fast, but uh, the coaches really thought we needed some training and how to be fast, so you ran a lot of wind sprints. If anybody's played basketball and you've had to run a lot of wind sprints, we used to have to go seven lengths of the basketball court, and then we'd stop, and they'd give you three or four seconds to breathe, and then they would say, go. I remember the coach, man, you did not want to have a lazy game where things didn't go right for the team, because the coach would be like, bring your running shoes. Like, bring our running shoes? Did you see this last practice? How could we do more running than last practice? Like... It's like now it'd be like, oh, why are you punishing Johnny? You're, you're bullying my child. They should be able to play basketball without having to run, right? Give them hoverboards. <clears throat> that was a dad I was imitating there, obviously. So we would go and we'd run these wind sprints, and it was torture. It was pain. You'd go home. I remember, I remember taking off my shoes and looking at my, you take off my socks, look at the bottom of my feet, and I didn't have blisters. I had blister, right? I'm the only person in the world who's ever had a blister that connected fully from the end of his toe all the way down to the pad of his foot to his heel as like one long blister. It was just like one like slide. It basically became its own sock, you know, the outer layer of skin. It's just like I put, I'm putting on extra socks. It's just skin now, you know, and my foot just kind of moves around in my skin like an alien who's taken on human life forms. I'm sorry, that just doesn't make any sense at all. But I, I, I remember going through, and it's just painful. It's just painful. And you'd wake up in the morning, and you'd go, oh, 
Oh, and it's 5.30 in the morning and your mom's like, you only have, you have to be there in five minutes, right? Because then you got morning practice and you got afternoon practice. And, and just like, I, I want to be better at basketball. I spent all my time running here. But they understood, they understood that if you want to go to the game and you want to have fun and you want to win, you got to have a lot of pain getting there. Am I right? It takes a lot of pain to get there. Elijah just started training for next year's baseball season. Next year. Did you use a baseball glove? Did the person that was teaching you even know how to use a baseball glove? Probably not, right? Because the person teaching him was a fitness expert. And it was strength and agility. I don't know what the exact name. So he goes to this thing and he comes home and he's like, Dad. And I was like, I know. I know what you're going to say next. I don't need you to say I'm tired or I'm sore. I get it, and it's just going to get worse. And the next day, you're like, oh, my goodness, I thought I could move. I'm a child. I should be healthy and, you know, agile, and I, I realize I need to be a lot more. The church has to go through pain just like an athlete. That's why Paul uses references to soldiers, uses references to athletes, uses references to farming. You know, if you ever think about farming, like, you go, farming doesn't seem to be, you know, as much of a physical sport. Really? Go hang out with a farmer. See what they go through. See the things they do. See the things they lift. See the amount of people, the amount of time involved. It is exhausting. My mom grew up on a farm. I have relatives have farmed or been farmers or, or grown up just helping farmers, and it is like not something I want to do. Like, it just sounds like a ton of work. You ever drive on a road, you're like, I'm up really early, and the farmer's halfway done with what they've been doing in the morning before they go and they do stuff all night. Now you, you see the combines out, and it's late, 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 late at night, and they're still driving along. Like, oh, I'm just tired for them. I want to I go give them a NyQuil and just say, sleep well. You know, it just seems exhausting. But Paul uses these examples because he realizes the discipline that it takes. If we're going to, as a church now, if we're going to play the game, you don't just show up at the game. Anybody ever shown up for a game without pre preparing for a game? Any type of game, any type of sport? You ever show up without preparing? That is no fun. It, it, we call them pickup games, right? Now, when I was in college, we played pickup games all the time, so it was its own preparation. Played intramural basketball, played, you know, played out in the playground with these Chicago kids, and we, you know, were a bunch of like, hey, we're going to shoot it from far away, and they were slam dunking it over us, and then doing the oh thing right all over us, and we were like, okay, like this is really fun, but I'm glad you're having your fun beating us really, really bad. Ray Ray was awesome. He was Woo! Kid could jump. It was awesome. But you show up. Hey, you know, I haven't, I haven't shot in a basketball in a long time. We were at a, we were at a picnic at my, uh, my mom and dad's house, and my, my grandpa was there, and he goes, he goes, hey, give me the ball. This is years ago now. My grandpa's dead. He said, give me the ball. Let me show you how I beat UCLA. Dribbles the ball over the side. You know, he's got that look on his face, like I'm showing off to the grandkids great grandkids. He's like, watch this. And he goes like this to shoot. And grandpa starts going over. And he can't stop. And he's never had his feet probably in 15 years move as fast as they did. Because the minute his weight got to the side to show how he did the fadeaway against UCLA, 
which it never really happened. He played at Milliken. It's a little different. He's dribbling along. He does the shot, and all of a sudden he loses his balance, and his feet are doing this, and everybody in a millisecond gets terrified. You know the feeling, right, of somebody that, uh, when I see Molly start to go down, it's basically like there is going to be a broken bone in this moment because I'm just so scared, and her balance has never quite been what it has, and then after she's had brain surgery, it's, you know, just like, oh, just every little imbalance. I'm like, oh, trying to make sure she doesn't fall. I'm, I'm telling her, I'm, you know, it's slippery outside. I need you to walk. I need you to walk. I need you. It's like I don't want to see the, what's going to happen if she were to fall down and hurt herself because of balance issues. My grandpa goes down, rolling on the ground, and we're all running toward him, and guess what? He is embarrassed. My grandpa, very proud man, man of the town, well-known, you know, all this. He did not want his great-grandkids looking over him going, great-grandpa, something wrong, you know? <laughs> Is that really how you beat UCLA, great-grandpa? Um, uh, <laughs> you know what it's like to pick up a game when you've never done it before, right? Jack in the play is playing darts. Jack don't play darts. So he goes over to the dartboard, he goes to throw it. This is, I wasn't there last night, but I heard that he missed the entire dartboard. So he walks up to it during the play, picks up the dart, and sticks it in the middle. <laughs> Which is a great kind of improv moment for him there. I know, bow and arrow, Wayne, watch out. It's already dangerous enough, man. You get a dart to the dome. So, so you know, you, you just pick up some darts, say, hey, I can do this. So you're trying to pick up a Frisbee and haven't ever thrown a Frisbee or thrown it in 20 years. And it's like, oh, that went into a river. Like, that's bad. We need preparation. We need planning. We need day-by-day, week-by-week work. We need to have a system put in place so that we can do those things. The system had been put in place by the church. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews, the Greeks and the Hebrews, okay? The, the, the ones who had the Old Testament and the ones who didn't, but they're converts in. A complaint came by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there was a system in place. There are those who cannot do for themselves in the way that a normal, healthy family would have the ability, but they're widows. And so there was a daily distribution. There's need here, and so the church has been prepared to help where there's need. The system's in place. The structure is already there. But guess what happened? Some of the Greeks had a complaint against the Hebrews because the Hebrews were taking care of theirs and the, he, the, the Hellenists, the Greeks, were not getting taken care of. Now, you could look at this and say, oh, well, this is a dispute between the Greeks and the Hebrews and at least it's written out that way so you can go, well, that, that could have been an issue. But most scholars agree that it's not really the point here is that there was some type of racial divide. It's simply that if you're a Hebrew, there, there's already a history of how you take care of each other. Okay? It's already been built in long before Jesus came into the system of the nation of Israel. And then you've got these now outsiders in, and it's easy to forget them. There's people in this church, if they have need, you've already helped them, you've already been a part of their life for a long time, and you would help their need. But if somebody comes in new and they've been here for six weeks or for six months and they have need, you're less likely to serve them. Not because you're a racist or a sexist or anything else, 
but simply because they're not a part of the system. They haven't been there for very long, and it, it, it's not, they don't pop into your head. I tell Molly all the time, she goes and she works for an orthodontist, and she'll come home, and I'll be like, oh, I didn't do the dishes. And then, you know, I'm like, I just want you to know I'm not a, a, a wife hater, and I told you I would do the dishes. I just, it's not in my system yet of every day I have to just make this commitment to do it long before she's going to come home or it won't get done. I find other things to do or I'm doing my work or, or whatever, but it's something I've committed to do and then I, I didn't get it done. I'm trying to build that system so that I'm, I'm it's, it's so much a part of my routine that I would not forget it because she's important and I want to take care of that for her so she doesn't have to come home and do more work. This system was built, it was obviously was working to a point, but now a number of people that have come in are realizing that some people are being neglected. And if it was a racist thing or a, you know, a cultural thing, then the apostles would have said, why are you, you know, what's going on or who's not taking care of business? Or, or somebody would come to the, the apostles and say, why are you guys discriminating? But that wasn't the point, so I don't think that was the issue. That's not how it's explained. So look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples. Okay? So problem arises. There's complaining growing on. There's some kind of grumbling out there that something bad is happening. Not the bad kind of grumbling in which somebody is just going, you're not doing things my way. That's not what's happening. What's happening is, is somebody is saying there's a legitimate need and people are being overlooked and you can't overlook the people who already can't take care of themselves. We are to be there for them. So the 12, meaning the apostles, the main leaders of the church, the ones who were with Jesus and the ones who have been prepared by Jesus to be ministers of the church, the 12 summoned the full number of disciples. I don't know what that means, the full number of disciples, other than the majority of the people here, right? And said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They have been called by Jesus as apostles to do something very specific, something that not everybody else could do. And as the neglect happens there, probably very unintentionally, but it's still real. As there is neglect, they look at that and they say, if, if we are to go and try to fix this and fulfill it ourselves, that will take away from what's causing us to have so many needy people to take care of anyway. We don't want to just cocoon ourselves and say, okay, well, we just got to we we cut the number. No more in. That's it. The full number are here. And that's got to be good enough. No, they go, that, our mission is to the world. We've got to keep, on this mission, we've got to keep sharing the gospel. We've got to keep doing the things that, that we have been called by Jesus to do to bear witness to him. Not just to bear witness as all of us can, but bear witness in the way that they only could because they have been with Jesus. They can literally say, I have been with him. I was there when he died. I was there when he was raised from the dead. I saw his body come from the grave. So they said it's not right for us to go and fix this problem ourselves when that would take away from what God has called us to do. So there's another thing God has called us to do. It's basically the way they say it, even though they don't word it that way. What God has also called the apostles to do is to bring other people, equip other saints for the works of ministry. Get that from Ephesians 4. So, they said, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There's things we've been specifically equipped to do, and there's people out here in need, and so we are going to pick others among the disciples to go and to fulfill those needs so that we can go fulfill these needs. It's pretty simple, right? We are delegating. Delegating is such a, oh, I just I hate that word. It doesn't just sound, there's nothing cool about delegating except when it truly means what it's supposed to mean, which is we are multiplying ourselves in certain ways, people full of the Spirit and wisdom, in order to go and to serve those who have this need. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and you go on down the list. They picked, and the, the, the first two are people you'll see again. Stephen and Philip. Okay, If you keep reading in Acts, you'll see Stephen. He's martyred. You'll see Philip. He goes to meet with the Ethiopian eunuch along the road and, and all of that. I won't go into those stories, but the, keep reading and you'll find out more. And the other, the other guys are there and they're there to do that job, but we don't know a lot more about them. So the people that were chosen were not just people who couldn't spread the word because we know they did. Stephen spread the word so well, he was killed for it. And Philip was the first, you know, missionary that we kind of see going to somebody from Africa, talking to them, and then sending them along their way back to Africa so they can go and take the gospel where they go. These guys are, are important people. They are also ministers of the word, but not in the one specific way that the apostles were, at least not at that moment. Now, a lot of people think these are the first deacons of the church. Deacon, by definition, is a servant. By definition, they are table waiters. You don't go to a restaurant and say, I want to talk to the boss, and the table waiter says, that's me. <laughs> right? It's usually not. If the boss is waiting your table, you're at a weirdo restaurant. You know, find someplace else to go. That's something's, something's wrong. But they get somebody else to wait at the table. When something is wrong at your table, you say, can I speak to the manager? Can I speak to your boss? Because you want to talk to somebody who has that kind of power. Table waiters does not mean they're not missionaries, because some of these guys are, and as we would say, all of the members of the church are missionaries, right? We're all ministers. We just have different levels, different ranges, different abilities, different desires, different connection points, different kinds of people that make more sense to us and, and that we can speak to more fluently than others. In the same way that somebody in this room that could speak Japanese could do an amazing ministry to Japanese people, a lot of you would struggle to do. You could take a translator, you could take a book, you could listen to some audio tapes that teach you how to speak Japanese and go through the effort of doing that, or you could just send the person who already speaks Japanese. Okay? It makes, makes sense, I hope. It's the same way with the rest of us. If you've got somebody who's uh, well-to-do and has a lot more resources they can provide, they can provide a lot more resources. You have somebody who can speak Spanish, they can talk to people who can speak Spanish. You have some people who know how to cook, they can talk with other people who know how to cook. Or teach other people who don't know how to cook and who desire to. You have some people who are, you know, really good at shooting bows and arrows like Wayne, then you just, you know, you can connect with other people who love archery. There's things that you can do in areas where you can minister that not everybody else can. That's why the church has so many parts, so many different types of people. The more we look around and see people different from us, we should say, thank God. 
Because if, if I just love to spend all day, every day with every one of you because we just had everything in common, we would probably just not do anything else. But we have people in this room who like to do things that I don't necessarily like to do, meaning hobby-wise or out in the world. There's people in this room who could talk your ear off and people in this room who want to shoo you away because they're sick of listening, right? But they can connect with different types of people. Some of you are really good with your hands. I know a guy uh, I see at Starbucks and talk to him whenever I see him, and he's really, he makes like tables out of reclaimed wood and chairs and, and just beautiful pieces. He's just really good. He's really talented at those kinds of things. And when I look at that, I think, gosh, that would make a great fire, right? That's about the greatest usefulness I could get out of that wood if it wasn't already connected together and I could set my soda on top of it or coffee or whatever. Different people with different skills and different abilities and different, and different types of able, uh, abilities and commitments and, and, and time and all of those things involved. It means all of us together, the more we understand our differences, the better equipped we are for ministry. The apostles had one job that they could not neglect, and so they picked other people who did not have the same job, at least not at that point, and they said, can you head up this task? Can you make sure this doesn't fail? There are people who are needy, and we need you to help take care of their needs. So they picked seven, whether we call them those first deacons or not, is not uh, terribly important, although I think it's very fair to say this is the best model for us of what uh, a deacon not only should be, but of who we would set forth in any church as deacons. And it says they set them before the apostles, and the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. And then guess what happens? We have had this business meeting in which we've had complaints and we've had to, you know, call this meeting together and try to deal with problems. Anybody heard of this kind of meeting before? Anybody here ever been to a church? Okay. And so people complain, and then you have a meeting, and you deal with the complaints. And I want to say that is a biblical model of how a church lives together. And as a pastor who has fielded plenty of complaints, I'm terrified even saying it that way to you. Because I've received some very ungodly, cruel, vicious complaints. Some of you have too. I have, I have received personal attacks, attacks on my family, mean things said about me that people could never even know. And so have you. Some of your workplaces and other places, maybe even here. But there is a God-hearted, gospel-centered kind of complaining. That is not merely complaining, it is expressing a need. Right? You get the difference? Okay, this should make our next meeting go much more smoothly if we all get this, right? I've had people come to me and say, hey, you know, this needs to be done. I'm like, that's great. Would you help us to get it done? And then that person never talks to me again. If I say, I'll do it, they're like, okay, great. But if I say, can you help us to get this done? They're like, oh, mm. I mean, I just had this happen in the last couple of weeks. 
where there was something needed to get done, and I went to the person who said, this thing is out there, needs to be done, and I said, can you help me get it done? And they're like, well, let me look. Uh, it's not going to work out. Please don't bring it up again. They didn't say that. That's what they did. The church has to be a place where people who love each other can say something's wrong. And we go, you're right. Something's wrong. Let's work on this together. So they gathered together disciples and they said, something's wrong. And we don't want to make it more wrong. We don't want to compound the wrong by taking the apostles who have this one important, crucial task and, and who are the reason that so many people are coming into the church. You don't want to take the apostles and have them do the work of ministry of waiting tables, quote unquote, and, and to do that work of, of helping the widows when that would distract them from this other task. Not more important task, but more important for them task. And then these guys have this really important task and they're not distracted from this other task because that's for the apostles. And then there's going to be following hundreds of other and thousands of other tasks that will need to be done, other systems that need to be kept up, other distribution, other needs, other problems that are going to be taken care of by various people in the church forevermore until Christ returns and we don't have those kinds of needs anymore. And when you take care of the inside of the church, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. Because the apostles were set free from a certain possible distraction. Because the church fulfilled those needs. Because they said, let us take this upon us so that you can take that upon you. We both are doing this work of ministry. They're happening in different arenas, but we are going to do this so that you are set free for that. The word continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and the great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It's not just a great many, but now we're bringing in the priests as well, those who have been teaching, those who have been committed to a different system now Jesus has said, this all changes, and some of them are coming to believe. As time passes, it's not just the original crowds who are hearing the gospel. It's not just the people that have been scattered around the nations who've come together for Pentecost, and they hear in their own language at the beginning of the book of Acts. Now it is the establishment. They're infiltrating not just the crowd who hears and some believe, but now they're infiltrating the establishment in which there are people who have been so set in their ways, they seems like they may never believe, and they're coming to believe. Because the gospel penetrates all areas. There are no hearts that are too hard for the gospel. Because it's not our work, it's God's work to change those hearts. So the word of God continues, and I don't think it's an accident that that's just stuck there at the end of this passage. I think it is to say, as the church deals with her own needs, as the church, as everybody finds their roles and does them well, the church is healthy and thrives. That's the way I read that verse. And that is how we are to think as a church. So let me just put it this way, as we're headed to the end here, really quickly. Complaints are welcome. When the complaints are real complaints for real needs, and your job in the complaint is not to put someone down, but to help encourage people, stir them up to good works. Right? I can complain and say, this never gets done, and nobody ever does this, and this is something that happened to me. And what you're really wanting is everybody to go, oh, pity party, and shame on them. Why would you want to shame a member of the body of Christ? Why would you want to shame somebody who you are called to love? You're called to love your enemies, but you're shaming other Christians? What's wrong with us when we do that sort of thing? 
I want what's best for you, and you should want what's best for them, and they should want what's best for me, and it should continue to go. And all the stirring up is never to stir up trouble, but it is to lead us to good works. So we want to welcome good-hearted, legitimate complaints of need, and there's something that, that is, there, there's something open here for people to serve is the way we should see it. There's an opportunity for me to bless and to love. Who can fulfill that? Just like saying, hey, we need pew Bibles, which, by the way, we wanted to have here today. They're in the mail, but they're not here today. We said, we, said we need pew Bibles, and within two weeks, the, the, the need has been fulfilled. It's just one little tiny thing. It's, it's, in some ways, it's a lot easier to give our money than our time. Tomorrow? You're going to give your money tomorrow? And my time? Okay. Um, yeah, yes. So the, the Bibles are coming in and we'll have those, but it's just there was one need and it was fulfilled. Now we have to say, it's not enough for us to just use our paychecks or to drop a 20 or a 100 in the bucket. We need to give ourselves. Remember at the beginning of the series, we talked about that passage where it says, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to each other. So we give ourselves first to the Lord, then to each other, and we're looking out for need and we're saying, how do we fulfill it? So complaint, the church, in its gathered wisdom, comes together and tries to find solutions. The apostles then say, here's the solution. They, they give leadership to that. that. It's not just community vote. You've got to get that. It, we don't see any democratic movement here, even though they've gathered all the disciples. The apostles still provide leadership. But it says that the church is then agreeable. They're happy with the decision. Because they see that this is wise. We have this need and this calling. You guys have these needs inside the church. So we think what's best is for us to not leave our calling, but for you guys to pick leaders among yourselves and for you guys to then have them over this ministry. That's actually a pretty great model for picking different kinds of leadership is the church. I know churches, when they get elders and deacons, they'll ask the church to nominate them. Because guess what? Those are the people that you guys trust. And the leaders may say, these are the people that I trust, but they don't see the daily life of the church in the same way that you guys would see. And if I were to say, this person is really good, but there's a whole bunch of people who are going, well, I'm not complaining out loud, but deep down, I don't like that person doing that job. So the churches will have the people of the church nominate deacons or elders or various things. And then there's a process by which they'll pick those out. And often it is elders who will pick them out of the, the nominating group. But then the church needs to be agreeable with that. When they, when they say, yes, this is a good thing, we like your choices, then the apostles come together and make a formal appointment of those people, and the work of the church continues on. Now, I say all of that to say we need to think about the leadership of our church. We can't go anywhere if it's just me standing up here preaching and then me going and thinking of ideas and me going and trying to make a plan. That, that's not going to help, and you guys should go, absolutely, that's not helpful. That's not an insult to me. It's an insult to the church if only one person is standing there trying to come up with ideas. We need, this is why I think about this message in terms of creative ministry. That we are to have a people who look around and complain in a godly way. That look around for need. And you can come to me or other people in the church and say, look, I found, I found a need that's important. Any of us can just find a million needs out there, but we can't focus on every little need right? We can't focus on every little blade of grass screaming at us. We can't all go, man, something is bad happening in Paris. We all got to go get our plane tickets. No, we realize that's not our calling. We have to, we have to limit ourselves in some ways. 
But the church should be able to look around and say, here's need, here's stuff, here's, here's things we need to deal with. We need to go and look out for those needs, and we need to be willing to complain about those. And then the church needs to respond by saying, how do we do it? The need cannot be, okay, every time we find a need, we pick the pastor, we pick the elders, or even we pick the deacons, or even we pick you know, that certain person who always does certain types of things. I, I don't remember who I was talking to just recently, and I said, I said, 99% of the time that I ever have food with people, they always ask me to pray. And my response is, that is an unhealthy thing. Because somebody thinks the professional prayer is here, right? And, I mean, I, I get it. I'm not averse to praying for food or for, you know, whatever else we're doing. But when people come to me and say, hey, can I pray for you or can I pray for this thing? Man, it's just such an, it's an encouragement to me because it means we, we realize we're all in this and we're all ministers and we're all missionaries and we're all important in this process. And God hears each one of us in the same way. So we need the church to get creative and to be active. Remember we talked about the tentacles, right? To be sensitive to those around us where there's need from last week, this is where that is now, we're, we're gaining some feet. We need all of us now to be attuned to the needs around us and to, you know, to use the word complain in the most positive way, to have a legitimate concern for something that needs to be done and then to say, can we do this thing? Sometimes, and I've, I've had this happen to me even recently, some of you will come to me and say, hey, we really need to do this. And I'm like, no, we don't. And if somebody has a heart for that, but that doesn't mean it should be a church function. I have some people in this congregation who will regularly come to me and say, hey, we need to reach new people, and so we need to raise $1,000 and do this thing and do that thing. And I was like, why don't you just go talk to your neighbor? You, you don't need somebody to put together a program for you to walk across the street and talk to your neighbor. Right? So we've got to be careful not to over-systematize everything, but that's a good encouragement. So then we're sharpening each other and learning this is how we best go on that mission together. Maybe they need somebody to come alongside them to go talk with their neighbor. Maybe they need to have somebody join them, have a barbecue over at their house, so there's multiple people there so they can help each other, encourage each other in the process of trying to share the gospel. So we need to get creative, looking for needs, and being willing to fulfill them not just look for somebody else to fulfill them, right? To be looking to fulfill them ourselves. And if it's not us, then at least longing and praying that God would provide those who need. And that also means we can't just have a pet ministry. We can't just say, this is my thing, so I'm a minister, I do, I do my ministry. I'm not going to do anything beyond that. We've got to be careful to just say, well, this is the one thing that I already do. I really don't want to do more than that. It's too much time. And then we respond to need. A couple of, a couple of very practical things, and then we're done. One is, is we're, we're already putting some plans in place, really simple plans, but some plans in place where on Sunday mornings we're going to have a prayer gathering every Sunday morning. Now, this is not for the entire congregation necessarily. We may do that from time to time. But this is just for a few of you who want to show up and maybe for 10 or 15 minutes, just pray for our service before, beforehand. Pray for the service. Uh, you know, I can let you know what I'm preaching on and that kind of thing. You can, you can be looking at, you know, God bringing the lost to come and hear the message today. Maybe there's somebody driving by even now. Bring them, for some reason, make them turn that wheel into our parking lot and let them hear the gospel here this morning. How many of you prayed something like that this morning? We need to. We need to. 
And so somebody in this church is excited about that, and they want to start doing this. We're going to need multiple people who are involved in that, not necessarily 20, but you know, some people who can regularly, it doesn't have to be every single week that everybody's here, but a few people who committed to do something like this. It's an important thing. So Charles Spurgeon used to have a group of people that would, pull, that would pray in a room right below his pulpit every Sunday during his sermon. If that would be a really tight space right here because there's about this much room below the stage. Um, but you'd be prostrate, you know? Cool. Um, to, be, to be praying, that's just one of the ways we, we can think about ministry together. A church that prays together is a church that grows in their love for the Lord and each other. Um, small groups, we've got small groups are going to be starting up. Uh, I haven't talked to Molly about a lot of this plan yet, so I'm not going to tell you much detail, but we're going to try to have a time at our house this holiday season where we're going to try to have as many of you in as we can, and we'll have some food and share some time together, and we're going to talk about what we're going to do for small groups coming in 2016. It's something that has been uh, long neglected here and something that we're going to change. That's coming up. Sorry, honey, I just committed you to making some sweet products of some sort, uh, and others will be involved in that as well, I'm sure. Um, I'm going to put together, and I haven't come up with a, a schedule for how I want to do this yet, but I'm coming up with a plan, a training schedule, in which we're going to have times in which all of you who consider yourselves ministers of the gospel in some fashion can come together, or people who want to prepare to minister to the gospel where you don't know how to do that, not just in a missionary sense, but also inside the church. We're just going to have a training time for all people who are interested in ministry of various sorts, and that could be every single person in this room. We're going to have maybe monthly or something like that training times. We're going to come together for an hour and a half or, or whatever else it might be, maybe have a little bit of food and stuff. But we're going to have some intensive training and looking at God's word and saying, how do we grow together as ministers and how do we minister better? How do we actually deal with some of the things I'm dealing with? You know, Bob's over at the nursing home once a month just for our church service, and he's, they're doing other things. And some of you have been coming together and knitting these things or making them. I don't know how you'd put them together, uh, sewing them together on Thursdays. Um, you know, how do you, how do you continue to do that? How do you, how do you deal with, you know, having eight people that are involved and now it's just me doing it by myself, you know, whatever problem might arise six weeks down the road. And then you can say, okay, well, how do we, how do we deal with that? Or do we deal with that? And all of those things will be, this will be a a safe place for all the ministers of this church, all of us to come together and say, I, I, you know, maybe I'm not doing something. How can I find out what I'm good at? You can come and we can talk about that together. We'll have times to share those things with each other. We're going to have regular training opportunities for you to grow in your understanding of ministry and love for the Lord so that we can serve him better. And then individual discipleship. And this is just kind of where I'll, I'll finish. All of you need to think of you as a disciple individually and how can you grow individually as a disciple. And that means in some fashion, every single person in this room should not only just be involved in like a small group in which you're growing together with other Christians and serving each other and being on mission together, but all of you maybe need to think in even smaller ways. Maybe just one other Christian in the church who you can talk to on a regular basis and say, can you just ask me if I'm having my prayer time every day because I've been struggling? And if I know you're going to ask, then you know, it'll, it'll hold me accountable a little bit. Sometimes that can be kind of guilt-based, but you know, okay. I just, I, I need that. I need my kids to say, did you walk on the treadmill? You know, or did you chug a two liter today? I need them to ask me that. That'll help me. And we can find ways to do that for each other. It doesn't have to be anything major and formal. It could just be one Christian that you talk to and, you know, maybe see for coffee once a week. Or somebody that you hang out with on a Sunday after church and, you know, you have a regular meal together. and Just hang out and share stories with each other and, and pray for each other because you have friends who are lost and you want to encourage each other to share the gospel with them. 
the ministry of this church, I mean, I, I'm bringing up just a couple of practical things. There's so many other things we can bring up. But you, you, gotta, you gotta have these. These are things you cannot neglect. I'm trying to bring up the things that we all need to be a part of. Praying, fellowship, training for ministry, discipleship, all of these things are essential for all of us. And they happen in ways that we don't have to program in the same way, you know, some of you that are meeting together, the women of this church meet on a regular basis, and, and you're doing some things together, and learning together, having fun together. Those kinds of things are things that you guys are doing that. That's great. I want you to continue to do that. I'm not going to try to compete with anything like that, because that's what the church should do. should say, this is a need in our church. Now let's figure out how to fulfill it. We'll have the guys in the church do that. We'll have other groups of us do that. Some locally meet, some not locally meet together. Find, we'll find various creative ways to fulfill the things that God has called us to do and to encourage and stir each other up so that we would continue to be the kind of church he wants us to be. Next week, we're going to take kind of the next step of this and look more at the mission side of this, how we can all be missionaries even when some of us are more introverted or some of us feel like we're ill-equipped or some of us just don't know how to share the gospel. We are, maybe we're scared to death. I know people um, who every week they would get up to preach, a pastor would get up to preach, and he'd almost black out every week. And he didn't say, I guess I'm not called to preach. He felt called to preach, and so he figured it out. He figured out how to survive it and not pass out. If, if that guy can do that, certainly we can all figure out how to be a missionary where we are. Would you stand with me? We're going to close. We're going to pray for our food downstairs. And then we're, Lord willing, going to actually eat it. Just want to let you guys know, love you very much. If we're going to do any of this, it can't just me up here going, rah, rah, let's do this. Pastor Steve feels better about his sermon. And, you know, every one of us has to feel convicted that we've got to be doing more when it comes to each other and it comes to this world. Let's pray together. Father, as we um, share this meal together, would you minister to each of us? Would you call us to not just conversations about the weather and sports and Paris and all of that. May we conspire together toward good works, toward the world knowing you, toward each other growing in you. And may doxa truly reflect your glory. Thank you for the food you provided us now and for the fellowship that you have given us. We are not just a people who go and share life with each other and deal with each other. We are people who have been called by a name that is above every name. And therefore, as we're together, we're fellowshipping with you. We thank you for that. And may your spirit not leave us at this time, but attend us even as we minister together through this food. We pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. amen. See you downstairs.